Good morning and welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church. This morning we are glad that you are here today worshiping with us. We want to say our scripture memory verse for the month of August together. It's from the book of John chapter 19 verse 30. Let's say it together. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19, verse 30. We have been working our way through the Gospel of John, studying the Gospel of John in light of the reason for which it is written. And today we open John chapter 20. So we indeed are nearing the conclusion of our study in John together. John has been very clear about the reason that he's writing. He's writing so that we might believe, and not just believe, but believe and have life in Jesus' name. And you know the reality is there are events that happen in our lives that the Lord uses for His purposes. Events that perhaps even shake us to our very core. Sometimes these events can initially be very unsettling for us. And each of us respond differently when we are faced with crisis and challenging circumstances. Sometimes the breaks don't come. The waves continue to hit one after the other, after the other. And in times of crisis, we sometimes fail to remember that earth-shattering moments in our lives are never without purpose. Church, the reality is there is no crisis without purpose and meaning. When things look and feel most out of control, when we are unable to make sense of all that is going on around us, God is still in control. And as He settles the waters around us, He brings clarity through the cloudiness. We have been moving through the passion narrative, and you see a timeline on the screen today, and we've walked and waited through Jesus' betrayal. We've experienced the denial of Peter. We've seen the mock trial that Jesus was put on. We've looked at the conviction of guilt that was brought. We saw the torture, the torment that Jesus had to endure, and His death. And then, of course, last week, Jesus' burial. And today, friends, today we approach his tomb. The tomb is supposed to be a memorial. The tomb is supposed to be a place of peace and quiet. It's supposed to be a somber and reflective place. A number of years ago, I had the experience of taking a group of high school students down to Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. And the goal of this trip, this was not a normal student trip. Many students would be going to amusement parks or places where they can run around and joke and be silly. But the goal of this trip was to help our students visualize, even if in a small way, 
the price that was paid to secure their freedoms, the freedoms that we enjoy today. We wanted our students to come face to face with the cost of standing against tyranny and oppression. And as you can imagine, this was quite the task. We had around 60 students with us. And before we could even go into the cemetery, they had to sit and be instructed by workers at Arlington of how to behave appropriately within the cemetery. I remember the sobering reality that many of our students were confronted with. No running, no talking above a reasonable volume, no laughing, no horseplay. They were to walk around the cemetery in groups of no more than three to five. And the instructor informed them that day, that the particular day that we were there, that there were indeed services that were taking place in the cemetery. And so he instructed them about how they were to behave if they came upon one of these services. It was a very interesting time. And I remember as I myself entered into the cemetery with a group of our leaders, there were two particular memorial stones I was interested in visiting. First, I wanted to go and see the tomb of the unknown soldier, one of the the most famous stops at Arlington National Cemetery. Second, I wanted to go and see the tombstone memorializing Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. And if you know the area, if you're familiar with Arlington National Cemetery and that area right outside of Washington and you know about that area that time of year, the dogwoods and the cherry blossoms were in full bloom. And I remember coming to the crest at the top of one of the hills and looking down onto this scene. And when you look out over a scene Like this, you can't help but have a few different emotions that come upon you. One was gratitude, great thankfulness. But then also along with gratitude in your mind and in your heart, you start to come to terms with the magnitude of the crisis which required such a sacrifice. You know, at some point, friends... All of us will come face to face with crisis. I imagine that in in these moments, in the moments following Jesus' burial, that the disciples' lives had been shattered by this most recent crisis. It was the crucifixion of their Savior, of their friend, Jesus. They had Watch Jesus be beaten and abused. And we might begin to understand as we consider these realities why so many of them scattered in fear. The searing loss of Jesus is still fresh on their minds. Their time of mourning is just beginning. And as his disciples approach the tomb, they are now going to encounter another Breathtaking reality. 
The place where Jesus' body was laid to rest. A tomb that had been occupied, that was expected to be occupied, was now vacant. And today, today, we unpack and we explore the disciples' response to this situation. We examine the varied approaches in the text of how they handled this perceived crisis. And we will witness what God is capable of producing and accomplishing, even in very disrupting times. Friends, if you have your Bibles today, I hope you do. I would ask you to turn to John chapter 20. We open John chapter 20 today and we are going to read together verses 1 through 10. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Let's pray. Father, we open your word this morning. We come together as a body this morning in different locations. We come together as the church in our homes, in the homes of friends, the homes of family members. And Lord, we look to you. We need you to teach us, to instruct us. We need your spirit to go before us, to guide us, to open our eyes, to inform us of truth that is in this text today. That is what we need. Lord, we don't need to walk away from this text today the same as we have come to it, but we need you to shake us. If we are already shaken, then we need you to comfort us. We know your word can do this. We see a perceived crisis today, Lord. Your son, his tomb is empty. There's fear. Fear of the unknown. As we gather today, Father, there is much in our lives that is unknown. And so, Lord, we pray that we could learn through this text, how we might respond. And that we would be reminded through this text of what you are able to do, what you are able to accomplish, even as we face the great unknown. And we give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, 
not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You see, friends, for the disciples in this moment, there was crisis. It's the first day of the week. It's, it's the first day, and the first day of a new week is an opportunity for a fresh beginning, for the start of something new. And Mary Magdalene, she is one of Jesus' closest friends. She is from the city of Magdala, which was near the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' relationship with Mary goes back to very early in his ministry. Luke chapter 8 tells us that Jesus had formerly cast seven demons out of Mary, giving her a new and fresh lease on life. And following this encounter, she had made it a priority to remain with Jesus. Mary was one of the few who had stayed by his side. She was present at the trial of Jesus. She heard Pilate pronounce the death sentence. She watched as Jesus was brutalized, looking on as he had hung from the cross. Mary Magdalene, friends, was a woman of courage and conviction. And now she is back. And she's coming to the central location of our text today, the tomb. John uses this word tomb seven times in these ten verses. He is intentionally fixing our gaze on this place of incredible importance. It's very early on Sunday morning. It's still dark. You are familiar with this time of the day, the sun had not yet started to mark the dawn. It's very difficult to see this time of day without an additional source of light. And it's very ironic that Mary approaches the tomb without help from the light of the risen sun. And yet the sun, the light of the world, was already fully risen. As she nears the tomb, she recognizes that something is amiss. The stone that had been rolled across the entrance of the tomb, it was out of place. A tomb that was supposed to be closed, now laid open. And this reality sends Mary into crisis mode. Look at the beginning of verse 2. Look at her response. So she ran. She ran. It's an alarming observation. She doesn't stay to explore it on her own. She doesn't look any further. She runs and she runs to alert two specific disciples. She goes to Peter and John. And Peter and John's involvement in this situation would be very important. First as friends 
of Mary and his friends of Jesus and fellow disciples of Jesus, but also as legal male witnesses to this scene. They would have been very important. The empty tomb is not a fabricated story. The empty tomb is a real event. An event that had multiple witnesses who were arriving on the scene very early. Our text indicates that Mary was most likely not alone as she had approached the tomb, that there were probably some other women who had been with her. Take a look at what she says at the end of verse 2. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary does not know who the they are, nor do Peter or John. All they hear and all they know at this point is this, a tomb that in their minds is supposed to be full is now empty. And so Peter and John, they they set out towards the tomb. They need to go and investigate the scene of what might be a potential crime. We might pause here. I think it's interesting to note in the text, we don't see anyone stopping to inquire of God. This crisis had been so overwhelming. The weight of this reality was so heavy. They are so desperate to try to figure out and discover what is going on that there's no indication given that anyone stopped and prayed. As is often the case when we face moments of crisis in our lives, fight, flight, or freeze sets in. Friends, how often do we fail to stop and to inquire of God? I wonder how differently this narrative may have played out if at first Peter and John and Mary would have stopped and said, let's pray. Just a thought. And friends, this is real life. This is really happening in real time and space. And in this same circumstance, as disciples of Jesus, most likely many of us would have responded in the same exact manner. No time to wait. We must go. Take a look at verse 4. Both of them were running together. John and Peter, they take off immediately towards the tomb. And both of them are running, it seems, as fast as they can together to get to the tomb. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, this was not meant to be a race. This is not John's intention here to take a pot shot at Peter's lack of speed. However, if anyone ever does ask you who was the faster disciple between John and Peter, I would suspect that now you have biblical evidence. John chapter 20, verse 4, John was the faster disciple. 
None of those, none of those things are why John includes verse 4 in this text. And we've shared before, we've talked before about how these are very real events that are occurring with very real eyewitnesses. And as John wrote, he understood that these historical events would be some of the most scrutinized events in the history of humankind. Precision and clarity would be vitally important. And imagine yourself as an investigator. Put yourself in the shoes of someone that was investigating what was happening that day. Perhaps you may even ask the question, John, how did you arrive at the tomb? All John wants us to know is that he was the first to arrive and to see. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. The differing personalities of Peter and John in this text begin to come out plainly in what is going to follow. The first disciple arrives at the tomb. John, he is careful. He is deliberate. But he does not go in. So you see an image of what many scholars believe the tomb looked like before you today. And you can see the top is cut out. Obviously those stones would have continued across. And you can see the round stone that's rolled away. And what John did probably is he stooped down and looked inside. And at this point the dawn's early light is starting to help expose what otherwise had been a very dark tomb and John sees it's another verb the verb to see the verb to look appears so often in these 10 verses John is inviting us friends he's inviting us church to look and to see what he sees to encounter that which he encountered on that day to be shocked And confounded by that which shocked and confounded him. He does not have to go into the tomb to see that the linens that once bound Jesus were lying in the tomb, now deserted. And now I wonder if in the text you can hear huffing and puffing running in behind John Peter, who had been trailing John, and now only arriving on the scene after John has seen what he's seen. And Peter approaches the scene, and because of his personality, of course we know Peter approaches the scene much differently. Peter is a guy that just barges right in. He's not a man who waits for anything. This is the same Peter that stepped out of the boat onto the water. And walked. This is the same Peter. Who later on when he sees Jesus on the beach. And he's out fishing. 
doesn't wait to row the boat in to shore. He jumps out into the water and goes as fast as he can to Jesus. Makes sense. The same Peter, look at verses 6 and 7. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Peter sees the same cloths that John had seen, but because he enters the tomb, he observes one further detail. The face cloth. The one that had been on Jesus' head was not lying with the rest of the cloths, but was folded up and placed by itself. There is indeed significance to this. As Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea would have been preparing Jesus' body for burial, they would have used cloths that would have been soaked or covered in the expensive perfumes that Nicodemus had brought along. If you remember, 75 pounds had been purchased. And the most obvious reason for the soaking of these cloths and these perfumes is that they would wrap the bodies in these cloths and as the bodies would decay, as bodies do, the perfumes would help to offset the odors. The Gospels, in two different places, use the plural word, cloths. This indicates that there was more than one cloth used. And it's this reality that would therefore appear to rule out the Shroud of Turin as authentic to Jesus' crucifixion. As the Shroud is a one-piece burial linen, and in both Luke and John, there is mention of multiple cloths. And what I find interesting about all of this is not the plural use of the word cloths, but that the crisis going on outside of the empty tomb is in no way indicative to what has happened on the inside of the tomb. The inside of the tomb is not scrambled. It's not disorderly. Rather, the exact opposite is true. From what we can witness or gather from the inside of the tomb, it appears that Jesus conquered death, folded the laundry, and then conquered the tomb. I hate folding laundry. It turns out that it was one of the things that Jesus, or, or perhaps it was one of his angels, is one of the first things that they did after conquering death. And for all of us, it's a reminder that there's something of purpose woven within even what may appear to be the most menial of tasks in our day-to-day lives. The folded linens Church, the folded linens become an important detail in the recounting of Jesus' empty tomb. There is no evidence that's unimportant. 
or insignificant. Further, the folded linens remind us that there was nothing that was out of control or out of place in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. While from our very limited human perspective, we see chaos, we see crisis, we see disorder, disciples running back and forth, going in the tomb, wondering what's going on, where they have laid his body. We cannot forget that God knows, God sees, he has perfectly ordered the end from the beginning in everything we face in our lives. When we encounter crisis, when we encounter difficulty, uncertainty, adversity, the folded laundry in the tomb reminds us that God is in control, friends. Rest in His goodness. Reflect on the history of His faithfulness. We all respond to crisis differently. Some of us may respond like Mary. We run and look to others for support when we don't know. Some of us are like John in crisis. We are fast to the scene, but then we don't want to disrupt, but rather we're careful. We're deliberate with our words and our actions. And still others. Maybe even myself are a lot more like Peter. Eventually we'll get there. And when we do, the scene will be disrupted. But that disruption may in and of itself reveal even more details and be even more helpful. What all of us must remember is regardless of our response, there is no crisis that God does not intend to use in our lives. Indeed, God is at work even now, at the very least, the first disciple on the scene, and possibly even Peter, are facing a life-defining moment of clarity. There's an outcome. Take a look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. These things are written that you might believe. John chapter 19, again, I have written these things to you that you may believe. Seeing and believing in the Gospel of John reaches its pinnacle right here in verse 8. Seeing, believing. Those of us who are more like John than Peter, we all need a Peter in our lives. Someone to break that ice and let us know it's relatively safe. You can go on in. And now that Peter has done that which he's best at, the disciple who Jesus loves enters the tomb, sees the orderliness of the empty tomb. And there is only one conclusion in his mind. 
seeing, he now believes. And we can only surmise from the text that John has now believed on the resurrected Messiah. This is what the empty yet orderly tune does. It gives us all a reason to believe. Over the years, there have been many theories, many conspiracy theories out there. People have lined up with them. They've tried to argue away the resurrection. But those folded linens. Would Gentile tomb raiders have taken the time to fold the laundry? Who would loot a tomb and then carefully clean up after themselves? Before leaving. Some said it was Jews who moved the body. Well if the Jews moved the body of Jesus. They certainly would not have touched the flesh. And risked making themselves unclean. They would have moved the body with the linens on. See the reality friends is that faith is a gift from God. And so not all that look upon the same evidence will draw the same conclusions. There would be others, other disciples even, in that day as we're going to see as we continue to work through John, there were others who would actually need to see the risen Lord with their eyes. Thomas comes to mind. They would need to see Him before they believed. And some would look, and seeing, they would never see. But for the beloved disciple, for John, he didn't have to see the resurrected body of Jesus. The deserted, yet orderly linens were enough for him. And then verse 9. Verse Verse 9 is very interesting in this text. It's interesting because it testifies to the reality that John's knowledge of the Scriptures are not what motivated his belief in this situation. Rather, John's belief was motivated by what he saw. And rather ironically, it was motivated by who he did not see in the empty tomb. Not by what he understood or knew from the Scriptures. In this we see how God is able to use experiences He brings into our lives in powerful and transformative ways. God uses the experience of this empty tomb together with His Word. The Word who John had Walked with in person in Jesus. The word which John had heard spoken by Jesus himself over the years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now what John sees confirms all that he has heard. Hearing and sight come together as as John gazes upon the work of God. And this motivates John's belief. His gift. His faith is a gift from God. Take a look at verse 9. 
For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Author and theologian Andreas Konstenberger says this, quote, This account proves that the disciples did not fabricate a story to fit their preconceived notions of what was predicted. Rather, they were confronted with certain facts which they were initially unable to relate to Scripture. End quote. Today, friends, as we gather as a church today, we have the gift of God's Word. We can look back at certain Old Testament Scriptures and can see how perhaps they have pointed to the empty tomb. Many start with Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Others go to Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Still, even more scholars declare that the entire narrative of the Old Testament Scriptures direct us towards the resurrected Jesus. But I have another question. A question that I believe informs, I believe informs even more the veracity of the empty tomb. That question is this. How does the testimony concerning an empty tomb given by a few men and a few women grow into a global movement that reaches every nation, tribe, and tongue? And isn't the answer to that question what the rest of the New Testament unpacks for us. Acts chapter 2, Peter's words bursting forth at Pentecost in a powerful sermon testifying to the resurrected Messiah. Later, Paul magnificently delivers a message to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3-5, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, and He continues on and on and on. By the time Paul is writing to the Corinthian church some 17 to 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, there is now full recognition regarding how the resurrection was in accordance with the Scriptures. And later in that very same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul draws the following conclusions regarding the importance of the resurrection to the Christian faith. Listen to what he says in verses 14 to 18. So important, friends. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Friends, what are we doing here? 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's that empty tomb. It's that resurrection truth, friends, that gives us great hope. It gives us purpose. It reminds us in times of crisis and times of uncertainty and times of unknown that there is nothing that God brings into our life that is in vain. Because Jesus was risen, conquering sin and death, we too, church, are risen. The empty tomb confirms our faith. It gives us cause to rejoice that our sins have been forgiven. It is the empty tomb that gives us hope. It gives us hope so we can meet difficulties with an attitude of destiny. It gives us hope that we can face crisis with courageous confidence. It gives us hope that we can experience pain here on earth with great peace. It speaks to us that we can overcome adversity with the advantage of Christ's ultimate victory. And that we can approach death with the hope of eternity's delight. And I would ask you today, church, are you living? Are you rejoicing? Are you celebrating? Are you flourishing in the hope and the truth of the empty tomb which points us to our resurrected Messiah? Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we are thankful for your empty tomb. Lord, as we watched your disciples today scurry In the face of crisis, we witness your hand in the midst of the unknown producing faith, belief. Father, many of us today look at the landscape of our lives and we can identify terrifying unknowns. Many of us today look at the landscape of our lives and we see difficult areas ahead. Lord, our go-to is fear. Our go-to is the same go-to as your disciples. And we need your help, Jesus. We need you to help us Not live motivated by fear, but live motivated by love. 
Remind us, Lord, that this indeed is the evidence of the gift that you've given us, the gift of faith, that we would be moved, led, guided by Jesus' example of love. Lord, we have so much gratitude as we look at the empty tomb, understanding what it has accomplished for us. What Jesus has accomplished for us. And Father, in today's world, we will not ignore the reality that we could all use a little more gratitude. And so, Lord, we pray that the empty tomb would make us a grateful people, a loving people, and a hopeful people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for joining us, CNBC Online, this week. And we hope to see you next week back in our building. Have a great afternoon.